Hey, good to see all of you and uh, worship together on this day. Um, today is obviously is our Thanksgiving Sunday, and I know everyone is um, ready to eat. And uh, I just came from Brea too, and the, the, at Brea the kitchen is right connected to the worship room, and so the food is the smell is starting to come in to the room. So it was really hard to focus, um, and. Um, we're just excited about this. And, you know, as, as, I, as I was preparing this Thanksgiving Sunday message, I was just grateful for a lot of, you know, you start thinking and a lot of things you're grateful for. And I, I just wanted to, um, you know, wanted to thank all of you, first of all. I, I was grateful to God that I have the opportunity to come and pastor a church like this um, with so many wonderful people. And uh, not, not just wonderful people, I'm not just saying it generally, but people who respond and people who um, are genuine in their faith. And so even when we do this be generous thing, we get hundreds of people that sign up and they'll go. And we, our problem is we don't have enough spaces because so many people respond so well. And so I'm just grateful um, for that opportunity to pastor a church like this. Last night I was going to a wedding, one of our um, sisters, uh, couples at our church in Brea got married and I was going to the wedding. I was talking to my wife and I said some silly joke and she was kind of, you know, like <sighs> shaking her head at me, you know, like as, uh, and, and, I, and I was like, yeah, it's, and I told her and I was like, that's yeah, by the grace of God, I, I'm a pastor. And she was like, oh yeah, that's true. You know, and so it was, um, Thanks, honey. Um, uh, uh, and I, so I thank God for her, and I thank God for uh, all of you. I thank God for um, our staff here, Pastor John and Daniel and um, uh, Peter, Sergio. Um, they work tirelessly, and I'll, I'll walk in on Friday morning, and Sergio's, you know, he likes to keep his office area dark except for one light, so he scares me, and he's working on a sermon for the kids and for the students, and he loves them, and... Uh, so I, I'm grateful for them. I'm grateful for um, all of our community group leaders. You know, to to you're, you're the glue of our church that help uh, people come in and um, to just welcome them and show hospitality. Uh, really, the hands and feet of our church. And I just want to thank all of you and even for our um, our elders when we meet. And they keep me accountable. You know, and I report to them, and they give me a and they work tirelessly on you know overseeing the budget and these things and. Um, uh, they do the worrying for me, and and they, you know, and I'm accountable to them, and it's, it's just a joy to have that, um, and to have that kind of wisdom all together. And so I'm just grateful. I, I could go on and on, um, and uh, but I'm gonna just kind of pause at that. You know, we get to this passage, and um, it's a kind of a longer passage. There's a description, I think, of 18 things, characteristics of these people who are coming into the church. And they had the form of godliness, but they were denying its power, it says, right? Um, they acted like they were Christians, but they were denying its power. And they were taking advantage of widows and people who were vulnerable. And they would come in and they would use the right language and the words and they would take advantage. They would um, gain, you know, um, on a personal level, a means from them and they would take from them. And he says, avoid such people, and he warns against them. He compares them to Janus and Jambres, who uh, most scholars say these are the, the magicians who were going against Moses in front of Pharaoh, and they were imitating the miracles that were happening, as we remember that story. And so they're faking this, and they look like they are genuine, but they're not. He says, avoid such people. 
And one of the characteristics of the people of the end times, he talks about the last days. And just, a, you know, in verse 1 it says this. Uh, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. It says, in the last days. What is he talking about, the last days? And some of you, if you grew up in certain types of churches, you have a big fear of the last days. Like, what's going to happen? You know, am I left behind? What's going to be happening? Well, the last days here. Um, and, and most scholars all agree on this. The last days refer to the end of Christ's uh, earthly time, his ascension, to his return. And that period of time, it's considered his, the last days. And so we're technically all in the last days. So it's not saying that Paul was wrong because history kept happening. No, it was this era that we're living in. So when he's referring to the last days, it's the days after Christ's uh, ascension to his return. These are the last days. And he says, and, and then... Um, there'll become times of difficulty or periods or uh, times that's mentioned that it's genuinely going to get more difficult, right, in this way. One of the things that are mentioned here is in verse 2, a description of these people in the last days that they will be ungrateful, that they will be ungrateful, plus a whole another list of things, but they'll be ungrateful people. And when you think about being ungrateful and you come to church, and sometimes this is kind of, a, you feel a little guilty about this because you know you're going to come to church today. You probably thought, yeah, it's probably going to be a Thanksgiving sermon. Pastor's going to tell me I should give thanks in, in my prayers or I should sing extra loud or, you know, I should give offering or like a, a, a bunch of external things I need to do, a bunch of religious duties that I need to act upon but I don't feel it. And we've, we've all been there, right? Even as children, we've all been there when our parents have told us, oh, say thanks to, you know, auntie for that. And you're like, I, I don't even want that. I don't want to say thanks. You better say thanks right now. Thank you. And you know that wasn't real, right? You know that wasn't genuine. And we still go through that. And now sometimes uh, some of you are parents and you do the same. You better say thank you for that. Like, I didn't want to come eat this. I, I want it to be, just say thank you, you know, so-and-so. I remember growing up in high school, I had an aunt that would visit from Korea, and she would always, and this is in the 80s, right, and she would always want to bring goods from Korea for me. And back in the 80s, there was nothing that was made in Korea that I wanted, nothing other than food. Like, I didn't want any, especially fashion. You know, auntie, you don't know my fashion, but she would always bring me stuff. Right, socks, underwear, and then it would be something on the outside I have to wear. And then the pressure would be on for me to wear this. Now, I remember one year she brought us sneakers, Tennis shoes. Guys, you remember when you were in high school, your tennis shoes, I mean, this is social suicide if you don't have the right tennis shoes on. And she brought me these shoes, and the, I still remember the name brand was called Le Caf. And I was like, I, what is Le Caf? And she goes, these are great, these are leather. You should wear it. They were size eight, I wore size 11. But she said, <laughs> my aunt said, they stretch, they're leather, just wear it. I was like, I can't wear Le Caf. It, it, it has to be Nike. Adidas, like Run DMC doesn't rap about Le Caf. He raps about Adidas. I cannot wear those other, I, I can't wear that. And my mom said, you better say thank you for those shoes. I, I hate those shoes. Um, <laughs> can you tell her to bring? And so my mom threatened me, you better do this. And I remember thinking, oh, thank you for the shoes. And the mind said, oh, try it on, try it on. And I would cram my, oh, it's a little tight. It's leather, it stretches, just wear it. I said, I'll wear it in the house, but never outside. And sometimes we feel like that. We feel like you come to church or you hear someone say, oh, you got to count your blessings, you got to be more thankful. And you're like, yeah, but the older we get, the harder it becomes. Right? 
Because gratitude and thanksgiving is not an external act that we do. It's a matter of the heart. So this is interesting, right? In 1 Thessalonians 5.18 that we know so well, give thanks in all circumstances. I'm sure half the churches today in America are preaching from this verse. Give thanks in all circumstances. This is impossible. How do I do this? What do you mean give thanks in all circumstances? The good and the bad? The hard times? The unexpected hard times? You want me to do this? Yeah. You know, uh, there was an article in the New York Times uh, by a man named uh, David Brooks writes an article called The Structure of Gratitude. Um, and he, he talks about gratitude and he talks about kind of two categories. And he says there's the dispositional gratitude, which is people that are grateful in general, we ought to get to. And he talks about our culture, the capitalist meritocracy we live in. And he says, you're, you're going back and forth on this and there's a tension here. Um, And he explains it this way. Brooks says that gratitude, and I love his definition, is a sort of laughter of the heart. And I love that title. I I love that description. Because uh, genuine gratitude is a laughter of the heart. I'm so surprised. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. You know, if you remember watching Oprah, you know, on one of her shows, telling everyone in her audience, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car. And then the, the excitement that shows up from the people there. The laughter of the heart. You know, when you are so grateful, it's so unexpected. And the older we get, that laughter goes away. It becomes formality. It becomes something we do out of saving face. I write the thank you note. I respond by email. I want to say thank you to this because I don't want to seem rude. I don't want to put myself down. But he says there's these two things that we struggle with. And, and I just want to read a little bit of the article from Brooks. He says, we live in a capitalist meritocracy. This meritocracy encourages people to be self-sufficient, masters of their own fate, but people with dispositional gratitude are hyper-aware of their continual dependence on others. The basic logic of the capitalist meritocracy is that you get what you pay for, that you earn what you earn, what you deserve, but people with dispositional gratitude are continually struck by the fact that they are given far more than they pay for and are much richer than they deserve. Capitalism encourages us to, be, to see human beings as self-interested, utility-maximizing creatures. We live in a capitalist meritocracy that encourages individualism, utilitarianism, ambition, and pride. And this is what he closes his article with. But this society would fall apart if not for another economy, one in which gifts surpass expectations, in which insufficiency is acknowledged and dependence celebrated. This is really the heart of those who have responded to the gospel. And that I am always grateful in this way. So it's a, a matter of the heart. And we see in our text today he talks about the things that we love. The people of the last days, the end times, um, those who come into the church, they look like they're Christians, but these are the characteristics. And he talks about love, and I want to highlight this. He says three things that they love that they shouldn't, and two things they ought to love that they should. Right? It's kind of summed up here in that way. Um, our love here helps us to understand who, uh, how to be grateful. Right? And so let's go through this. Number one, uh, he says at the end, people will be lovers of self, right? In verse 2, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. 
what do we love? This is a matter of the heart. He says, these people who are not genuine in their faith will be lovers of self. This is very natural. Uh, you know, it is uh, Malcolm Muggeridge who said this. He says, if God is dead, somebody is going to take his place. It will be megalomania or erotomania, the drive for power or the drive for pleasure, the clenched fist or the phallus, Hitler or Hugh Hefner. He says, someone will take God's place. People will become lovers of self if they don't love God. You see, if you were watching the news, it was just tragic this week, uh, the news that Charlie Sheen came out and said that he was HIV positive. And, you know, I, I remember watching him in the 80s and 90s and, and, and the movies that he would make, and he was one of the, the teen idols of the day. Um, and, and the tragedy is, and I was looking on his life, and I was reading an article, and, you know, he, he's already a grandfather at age 50. Um, he has children from several, three different marriages that didn't work out. Uh, and his life goes something like this. In 1990, he uh, was engaged to Kelly Preston, but he accidentally shot her in the arm, so she broke the engagement, which, uh, yeah, that would happen. Um, oops, sorry. Um, that was bad. 1995, he marries his first wife, Donna Peel. Um, same year, uh, his name comes out in the Heidi Fleiss scandal. He is one of the... Um, the the people on the list, so she divorces him in 96. He meets an actress, Denise Richards, in 2000. Um, and uh, five years later, she files for divorce because of his alcohol, drug abuse, threats of violence. 2008, he marries his third wife, Brooke Mueller. They have twin sons. Um, and later, uh, he files for divorce before two years. In 2011, he is then at that time living with two women at the same time. Um, one is a adult film actress and he's living with them. That doesn't work out. He ends up now in a relationship with, um, uh, the article says, a penthouse pet of the month lady after that in an interview he did with Pierce Morgan. Um, he gets engaged in 2014 to adult film star, some other person, so on and so forth. And you think about that. Here is a, a man, and I was reading about him, he, he ended up getting expelled from high school early. Um, he was classmates with other actors like Sean Penn, and so they got together and made their first, you think about that. You think about the things that we in our society just elevate, youth, fame, health, good looks, money, all of those things. And we've seen in our own little short history, whether it was Magic Johnson or Tiger Woods or this guy, uh, they naturally will become lovers of self. If God doesn't inhabit our hearts, we will be the idol. What do we do? How do we respond to that? Right? And it's just tragic. The second thing he says we love, uh, that, that in the end times that people will love in verse 2, is that they'll be lovers of money. Now, money is very important. Um, the, Jesus talks about money than any, more about money than any other subject. If I preached about money as much as Jesus preached about money, like our church would go to zero because they're like, oh my gosh, all he does is talk about money. I don't want to go to that church. But he talks about it so much because it is so important. Greed. You know, the Webster's Dictionary uh, defines greed as this, a selfish and excessive desire for more of something and I love the last part, then is needed. More of something than we need. 
greed, the love of money. You know, Jesus tells us in Luke 12, 15, right? He tells to his disciples, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It's interesting, right? He gives us a dual warning about covetousness or greed. The New Living Translation says this. He said, beware, exclamation point, guard against every kind of greed. It's not just a one warning, but it's double. He's saying, don't open your right eye about it, but open your left eye about it. The word guard against, it's the word that is used by, in Luke chapter 2 to describe shepherds as they were guarding the sheep at night. They're on the lookout. It's dark in case any wolves might come, and they're watching carefully. He's, why does he give us a double warning in this? Because this sneaks up on us. And the older we get, this becomes uh, more and more dignified. Our hobbies become better, and our expenses become more justified, and we talk about it in those ways. The love of money. Um, you know, you think about this, right? This week, we're all going to get tested because the, the marketers have tapped into something they know. This is a condition of humanity. Greed. So Black Friday's coming. All right, the ads have been coming out for now several weeks. Um, you know, so at my house, my TV is now um, broken. So there's specs all over my TV. And you know, as a guy, you're kind of excited. Like, oh my gosh, it's broken. That means I get to get a new TV. So, um, you know, I was a little disappointed, but I'm kind of excited. So now I'm looking for a TV. And the ads have been coming out. And it's like, um, I can't keep up. I'm like, what kind of TV am I going to buy? How big do I want to get? What, and, and oh, well, Best Buy is going to, oh, wow, it's, I need to get, the, no, but then, you know, Walmart is going to, and, and, you know, so I Google it. I was like, okay, best cheap TV, and then it's just endless, right? And they're tapping into it. Think about it. People have literally died to go buy something. People have killed and trampled others to go get something. They know that this is at the core of the heart, that it is greed. And we have to protect and guard ourselves against this greed. Um, our culture, right? Now we look at greed as, um, as a, almost as a virtue. You know, hey, you work hard, you deserve this. Um, you know, our hobbies, you know, now it's, it's, it's become a hobby. People talk about, you hear, uh, you know, oh, you need to go have some retail therapy. And they use phrases like that to take something that is actually a sin and say, well, it's just, it's just something you do. It's something you just do. And the shows that we watch and the things that we get into, you know, whether it's the food shows or the house shows or these types of things, it's all about that. And it sneaks up on us because it doesn't look like it's satanic or bad or evil or harsh. This is just nice things. But we have to be aware of the love of money. You see, we have to use money. We can't let money possess us. We work hard. You should work hard. You should make a lot of money. So you should use it to go and be generous with it. Use it to take care of your family with it. Use it to further the kingdom of God with it. Not, I have to keep up and get more and more. Because think about this. Where we live today, um, and the places that we work, the struggle is we encounter people who are way richer than us. Right? I'm sure at your workplace there are people who make twice, five times more than you, maybe more than that. We all have a relative that lives in a, in a huge house, and we often talk about them. And we think, 
Those people are greedy, right? Those people are greedy, not me. Like, I'm not greedy. I, I, I don't make that much. They're greedy. Why would they do that? They're greedy. No, greed affects all of us from when we are children. Beware of this. Be careful of this, right? Um, thirdly, he says, these people will not love what is good in verse 3, right? Not loving what is good. Um, Guthrie, Donald Guthrie, in his commentary on this text, he says, moral corruption follows from love falsely directed, self-centeredness and material advantages. When they become the chief objects of affection, destroy all moral values, and the subsequent list of vices is their natural fruit. Right? It destroys all moral value. It goes away. The good gets replaced. God gets replaced. They don't love what is good anymore. Fourthly, they are lovers of pleasure, it says. Their hearts are given over to, their, to pleasures. Um, in verse 4, it says, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And Guthrie points out in, in his commentary that uh, pleasure is regarded as a substitute for God, right? So you're lovers of pleasure um, rather than the lovers of God. You, you can't have both. You can't do both. Jesus talks about that, right? And you can't have, you know, follow God and follow money. You, you can't. You can't. And they conflict. Um, so it's a substitute for this. And we think of pleasure um, often as a good thing, right? I mean, we often pray that God would get rid of our trials and pains, but we don't play, pray for our pleasures, that God would help us to restrain our pleasures. But, you know, it is uh, G.K. Chesterton who said, meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain. Meaninglessness comes from being weary of pleasure. You look at our society today. You look at where we live today. People are losing meaning. They're bored in life, and they're searching for something because they, don't have, they have too much pleasure. They're not hungry anymore. There's too much food. They're not thirsty anymore. There's too many drinks. And they lose meaning in this life. Um, Susanna Wesley is the mother of Charles and, and John Wesley. Um, and so if you know a little church history, you, you've heard their names. Um, They're the uh, Anglican clergymen who founded the Methodist Church. And Charles um, Wesley... Uh, penned over 6,000 hymns, and many of them that we are familiar with today, and they are one of those key figures that if you study a little bit about Christian history, um, that they will come upon. Well, Susanna Wesley is the mother, and the mother, um, really, many people point to her as the one who has raised them. Susanna Wesley was born, she was the youngest of 26 children, the youngest so you could really imagine she was an oops, like, oops, again, oh my, you know, you were, you were an accident, but we will call you Susanna, not accident. <laughs> Maybe you could imagine her older brothers and sisters, accident, accident, you know, um, you can imagine, hand-me-downs forever, right, at 25 older siblings. She got married, she ends up having 19 children of her own, right? Wow, um, she doesn't measure up to her parents, only 19. Uh, but she had a very difficult time as a mother. She um, gets married. At one point, her husband leaves her for a year to fend for herself. Um, and now she is with these children. Uh, she has faced the death of many of her children. That By the time that Susanna died, only uh, nine were alive. And so she goes through that heartbreak. 
But she is very strong in her faith, and she educates the children on her own till age five, and she teaches them the scriptures, and she is a woman who prayed and loved God. And she raised her famous sons, John and Charles Wesley, and they came to her one day, um, and they asked of their older mother now, how do you define sin? And her response to that has been recorded, and she says something that is very uh, interesting. Whatever weakens your reasoning, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, or obscures your, view, or your sense of God, or takes away your relish for spiritual things. In short, if anything increases the authority and the power of the flesh over the spirit, that to you becomes sin, however good it is in itself. Anything that is good that takes away from God. Think of the pleasures we have in our modern days today. There's so many fun things to do. There's so many wonderful things that we have around us. So many great places to try and eat and go and see and do. But if it takes away from the spiritual things, it becomes sin. We struggle with this all the time. And, we, and the church responds by trying to measure up with the entertainment value. Like people love music and now certain churches, man, it's a concert, light, smoke and everything. It's never going to really measure up to the world. You know, you know the, the, the comedies that are out there, the comedians are really funny. And some churches, they hire people, they do skits and they make it. It's never going to really measure up to it. It's a, a change of the heart. Right? I mean, you know, you're lying there, you have some extra time. And you're like, maybe I should read the Bible. You know, but then there's the, the you know, the, the latest episode of The Walking Dead. And is that Asian guy dead or alive? Or <laughs> like, was, was that him or not? I think I'll watch it again, like just to make sure. Maybe it was, you know, really. I mean, and the pleasures of this world is far more appealing. It's far more exciting. You know, oh, there's a big game, you know, football game. And, uh, you know, and it, it's really a blessing that we don't have an L.A. NFL football team for all the churches. Because imagine if there's a game and it's going to be at 11 o'clock. Oh, man. I mean, that's, that's tough. And we all struggle with those things. But what are we to do? We ought to love God. Let our hearts be filled for the love of God. When God is asked, when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest of all commandments? What are the external things I should do? He says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because once the heart is changed, once the heart is filled, we become grateful. Our perspective changes. And I want to challenge us this time. As we have a holiday and we have, maybe for some of you it's stressful and you know, parents are coming and they're coming and these people, and you're, what are we going to do? Um, that it won't just be this day at church, but that it would be a matter of the heart. I would love what is good. I would love who God is. And let the fruit of that just manifest into gratitude. The gospel message makes it crystal clear. I deserve nothing from God. God gives me everything and more. And I wasn't in a neutral place. I owed him. But he sent someone who owed him nothing, his son Jesus Christ, to die for me. And when we understand the gospel properly, we will respond in gratitude. I close with this 
quote from J.I. Packer, he says, any theology that does not lead to song is at a fundamental level a flawed theology. May our theology, our view of God, and what he did on the cross always lead us to song in our hearts. A song of gratitude, a song of worship. Let's pray together. Dear God, today we um, look upon this big idea of thanksgiving. And God, our country today has made this into a, um, a holiday. People take days off to celebrate this day. And yet we run to all the things, whether it's gluttony or whether it's greed or uh, the love of self or the pleasure and all these things, we run to that. God, not just this day, but we want to live lives that are grateful to you. We want our theology of you to lead us into song. In all circumstances now, we can give things because you, Lord Jesus Christ, have done so much for us on the cross. So we thank you today. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have a time of offering. And uh, Daniel and the team is going to lead us uh, in this song. And Pastor John is going to lead us in some prayers. Um, and then we'll have a great lunch together after. But let's give with cheerful hearts.